Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It has been a while since I have sat down and legitimately done a podcast and I'm really excited to start sharing some of the work that I've done over the last couple of years with a wider audience. I've been working, I've been the writer of a documentary exploring the concept of post-traumatic growth. I actually have some information on that on, on my website at rickalexander.com. I've got an article being published in a mythological studies journal soon, uh, which I'm going to share on here. I'm also presenting at a conference on an idea working with tantric psychology that I've been uh, working on for, I've probably been working on this concept for about a year and a half. So culmination of a lot of work that I've been doing over the last couple of years, I'm finally ready to start sharing. And I also did want to give just a little bit of a disclaimer as we head into today's show. And the disclaimer is this. Over the last couple of years, I have produced uh, quite a bit of work, but I've produced it all for an academic audience. And a lot of the papers I've written, they make assumptions that, well, for one, the person that is grading the paper actually taught me the information. So I'm assuming that we've read the same books, which I think is the, the, the biggest misconception in, in debates everywhere that because I think that when we try to debate or talk about our worldviews it's very difficult if we haven't read the same books because because we're coming from such different places let alone been taught the same things and so the disclaimer is just that as this paper that I'm going to base these ideas off continues to unfold and we get past the sort of introductory comments hopefully these points and and what it means to recover an ancient way of seeing will become more comprehensible and available. So if you can get through or get past the idea that you probably haven't heard of uh, some of the names or I haven't given a proper introduction to some of the names that I'm referencing, as the paper goes on, I start to tie them uh, together in a way that's hopefully more understandable if, you're, if you are really interested in trying to really recover this ancient and archaic way of seeing. And you'll notice as we get into it that a lot of the work I'm doing is trying to go into the unconscious aspects of our society. Like we have our values and we have our worldview and our way of seeing. And what really has captivated my interest is what's unconscious to us. Like what don't we see? And on an individual level, this has been really helpful in my own life. This is why I'm such a proponent of psychoanalysis and why I model my own one-on-one -on -one coaching work after psychoanalysis. It's like coming into relationship with what's unconscious can give us the opportunity to participate in our life in a completely new way, in ways that quite honestly we didn't think were available to us. And often what we notice in our society are ailments and symptoms. Those are all what you know protrudes into consciousness, so to speak. But a question for me is always, but where's the root of that symptom? Where is the root of the ailment we're experiencing? And that is almost always in the unconscious. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about recovering an ancient way of seeing. We're going to talk about recovering an archaic way of seeing, what we might call the mythic way of seeing, and we're going to contrast that with our modern philosophical and scientific worldview. And in this podcast, I'll just say I use, sometimes I use the word philosophical and sometimes I use the word scientific, but I'll talk about what that really means in the episode, but just know I use those interchangeably uh, in order to talk about our modern or postmodern worldview. And before we get into the show, I'd also say that I have a couple of spots available for one-on-one -on -one coaching if you're interested in that, if you're interested in working with me. 
uh, or feel called to in any way, you can apply for that at rickalexander.com. And also I've got a workshop coming up on August 24th. First workshop I've done in quite a while for a public audience. This time we're going to talk about the psychology of cannabis use. So looking at marijuana from a depth psychological perspective, that is, how does it affect the shadow? How does it affect the ego? How does it affect the soul? And really looking at it through cultural and ritual perspectives to just try to build some awareness around this plant that I think a lot of people are are working with today you know that are working with and sometimes it can it's very easy to work with something like that in a very unconscious way so the idea of this workshop is that we can bring some awareness to our practice and it it can then be used to facilitate and assist the the path of individuation rather than be an escape for us or something along those lines so anyway those those are some of the things that i have coming up i'll put all of the info for that in the show notes of this episode uh, without further ado, on to the show. There's a philosophy professor at Old Dominion University named Lawrence Hattab, and he wrote a book called Myth and Philosophy, A Contest of Truths. And in that book, what he did was he was looking to examine the way that human consciousness has evolved over the last 3,000 years. And what I mean by that is he's looking at what it means to be a self in the world and how that's evolved and how that has affected the way that we see ourselves today. Because, you know, you can read an ancient text, you can read the Iliad, for example, by Homer, which I'll talk a little bit in this paper about, and you can tell right away that we don't see the world that way anymore. And so what we're going to talk about are what are the implications on the way that our consciousness has evolved? Because we're in a current worldview right now, and it's very hard to see what's outside of that worldview. So I want to talk about recovering an ancient way of seeing, an archaic way of seeing, what we might even call a mythic way of seeing. And in order to do that, I'm going to highlight and contrast the philosophical or scientific way of thinking. And the reason I'm going to use philosophic and scientific as synonymous in this paper is because when Hattab is like looking at the ways in which human consciousness evolved, he really looks at Plato and the, and the philosophies of early Greece to be a point where, where human consciousness switched, where all of a sudden this scientific worldview that we have today really began. And we're going to talk about why that's seductive to us, like why it's helpful to us, and also what it keeps us from being able to experience and understand in our life, which is the sacred dimension or the qualitative dimension of reality. Because the modern person is bombarded with ills and ailments, which, ironically enough, the modern world with its current view of reality appears inadequate to address. And you can just ask any psychotherapist, like what brings people into the office? It's the qualitative dimension of experience. For this reason, people are engaging with methods to escape life at a seemingly ever-increasing rate. Now, this can be seen in the opioid epidemic, the rising suicide rate, particularly among young people, as well as what in April of 2022, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. 
Vivek Murthy called an epidemic of loneliness. Like you've maybe heard that before. I think that's, that says a lot about where we're at in culture right now. The same, at the same time, the modern view of the world, founded primarily on philosophical thinking, but currently masquerading as scientific thinking, has given us technological innovation, which has democratized education and connected disparate parts of the world in a way that has never been done before. Right? So I'm saying there are a lot of good things about our current way of seeing the world. But in light of this, the question presented to the modern person is, how can I both affirm the positive aspects of cultural advancements and current thinking while recovering the aspects of life that current thinking is unable to account for? Current thinking tends to lack a framework for understanding how one to, can connect with a qualitative dimension of their lived experience. And it is this dimension of life that grips the modern person with anxiety, depression, and a loss of meaning. Like these are the kind of things that our current worldview is inadequate to address. So these are the kind of things that I think we struggle with mostly. Lawrence Hattab, professor of philosophy at Old Dominion University, offers an intriguing answer to this question, not only by examining what it means to be a self in the world today, but also by examining what it has historically meant to be a self in the Western tradition, stemming from antiquity and continuing through to post-modernity. Now, beginning with the epic poetry of Homer, what Hattab does is he meticulously tracks the evolution of self-consciousness through to the current age. By examining ancient literature, he highlights the transition from a mythical to a philosophical worldview, how that transition affected the way human beings perceive truth, and finally, what that transition costs the individual in terms of the way that they relate to the world that they are embedded within. And I want to say this idea of how we perceive truth is going to become really, really important because we, we have to open to the idea that multiple things can be true from different ways of seeing. Hopefully I'll make a case for that as time goes on. Now, in calling attention to the advent of the philosophical way of, of seeing, which grows out of myth but does not supersede it, a point that is crucial to Hattab's conclusion about the multiplicity of truth, he examines the fragment left behind by the philosopher Anaximander, who lived in 600 BC, about. With this idea that, that philosophy grows out of myth, but it doesn't supersede it, is really important for us to understand, because in our view today, we have a bit of a, what I would call the myth of progress. We tend to view ancient people as if they didn't they weren't as smart as us, like if, if they weren't as good as us in some way. And part of that is because they didn't have access to the kind of information that we have access to today. But they would look at us and they would see that we were impoverished in many ways of being in the world. And here's a really quick example that will just give you an idea of the kind of argument I'm looking to generate here. So this point that philosophy grows out of myth out of the mythic traditions, but does not supersede it, is really, really important, right? Because when you get to philosophy, you start to get people like Socrates and Plato, they start using myth in the way that we use it today in this representational way. They're like, oh, this can be seen as this, and this stands for this, right? And so they're saying it's not true from a philosophical perspective, 
right? It's not true from a little literal perspective. This is the beginning of this kind of language. Um, it's true in a symbolic way, right? But what happens, I think, is that we have in our culture today what I would call the myth of progress. Like we tend to view ourselves, I think, in many ways as somehow smarter than ancient people, right? Than people that saw in this ancient way. And by smarter, we tend to think we are because we have more technology and we're more sophisticated and we have more ways of thinking about things. But that isn't what myth is trying to do. That is to hold myth up against the standards of our, of our scientific thinking, which in the paper, as I say, is I think a kind of a form of intellectual colonialism. We're trying to dominate their way of thinking with ours. But that is not how ancient people saw the world. And I have a buddy of mine um, in my PhD cohort who explained this to me really, really well. What he said was, you know, we look at, let's say, why the sun rises. We, we have this understanding of why the sun rises, right? We have from a mechanistic standpoint. And we tend to look at ancient ways of seeing and ancient ways of thinking as if they're just unsophisticated ways of how we think. Like, oh, they're trying to explain how the sun comes up too in this like clunky way with these gods. But they're not trying to explain why the sun rises from a mechanistic standpoint. They're trying to explain why it's glorious when it does. Right? So they're asking what gods are present. What is it really like here? And what does it feel like to be amidst such an experience as this? And, you know, I think, and I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this, but I think we can end up in a place where we start looking at symbols and parts of mythology where we're always asking like, oh, what does that represent? What does that mean? And something that's become really clear to me, it seems, in the last um, few years is that myth is not it's not representing reality. It's not representing it reality. That's how we look at myth from a scientific worldview. But it's not that they're representing reality. They're presenting reality. It's not a representation. It is the actual, it is trying to point at and deal with the actual experience of what it's like to be here. It's only from our our view where we actually do split subject from object and we have division between us and our abstracted ideal and us and our lived experience of life, only through that kind of a worldview where we have that kind of division in our life, do we then look at myth and then ask, oh, what is this representing? It's not representing anything. It's presenting, but it's disclosing a kind of truth to us, a dimension of truth that isn't available through our other worldview. It's presenting reality to us in a way so that we feel as though and we understand the sacred dimension of it. And actually what's very interesting is that you can find this in our language. So let's take a god or a goddess, for example, Aphrodite, right? We would say Aphrodite is the goddess of beauty or the god of beauty, right? But that is, that is assuming that she is the representation of beauty. But what but from an archaic way of seeing, she would be the goddess beauty. And here's how it was described to me, which is like you're standing on the beach. And when you're standing on the beach, and you know Aphrodite, the myth is she comes from the sea foam. So you're standing on the beach in the morning, 
and the uh, you happen to be on the east coast <laughs> and the waves are coming in and there's foam on the seashore and the sun starts to come up and it starts to sparkle off of the ocean and you have one of those moments where you you can't believe that it's real it almost feels otherworldly it, it, with its like astonishing beauty you are in the realm of aphrodite Aphrodite is present in that situation. So you see they're using the personification of these powers to talk about the existential dimension of reality or the qualitative dimension of reality. You are in the presence of her in such a, in such a place when, if we are to look at it through an archaic way of seeing. And you notice when we say, oh, she's the goddess of beauty. We've already removed ourselves from the situation. But the myth is trying to put us back into it. It's trying to point us to the, the fundamental layer of reality. So in this fragment that I'm going to talk about with Anaximander, we don't have a lot of information. We have just fragments of information. But it's very important information because it, it gives us the archaic way of seeing. And I'll show you how if we contemplate that enough, it can open things for us in the way that we see today. So Anaximander presents a theory which acts as a bridge, I think, between competing worldviews, drawing from both mythical and philosophical thought. And this makes it particularly helpful to the modern person who has unknowingly fallen under the tyranny of an exclusively scientific worldview. And it's unknowing. It's like the fish in water. The fish doesn't know anything about water because he's in it. This is the thing about our worldview. It's hard to see what we're missing because we're in it until we get access to other ways of seeing. In just a few short lines, Anaximander radically challenges the sterile perspective that the world is somehow fixed and can be accounted for in its entirety. Instead, he understands the world in terms of a process, a continuous flow of entities out of and back to what he calls aperion, A-P-E-I-R-O-N, aperion, from formlessness to form to formlessness. In other words, Anaximander calls to mind the eternal mystery that the phenomenal world is always embedded within. He's saying we come into being and we go out of being. And we don't know where we come from and we don't know where we go. And that's the truth about what it means to be here. So just hold that because that will become important as this goes on. Because I posit the idea alongside Hattab that when this mystery is acknowledged and mythical sense-making is included in what it means to be a human being, much of what the modern person feels as lacking in their life is also accounted for. Now, in order to achieve this end, I will compare and contrast the mythic worldview with the philosophical worldview and try to see if I can draw out any implications for our life today. There's something telling about the modern idea of myth, which tends to view it as a word synonymous with something that is not true. Implied in this idea is the hidden notion that truth itself is not only singular and exclusive, but that it can only be attained in a very particular way. In our age, that way is through quantifiable and measurable data. This type of truth, which is synonymous with a fact, falls within the bounds of logic. Logic itself, however, is a product of philosophical thought, which is only one way of viewing the world. When logic claims its supremacy as the only standard way of attaining truth, it implies the idea that any other kind of thinking must necessarily be false. 
Hattab points out that the philosophical critique of myth as a lesser truth is a rigged game for this reason. Because it's saying this is what truth is, and if you're not this, then you're falling outside of truth, right? In order to navigate this problem with the language innate in a particular worldview, Hattab opts for the term sense-making rather than logic when speaking of the mythic worldview. Right? Myth isn't trying to posit logic. It's not trying to explain why things happen. It's trying to point at the qualitative dimension of reality that grips us, that compels us, that impels us, and that we respond to. Myth makes sense of the world in a completely different way, which falls outside of the bounds of what logic allows. They're concerned with different dimensions of reality all together. Myth is concerned with revealing the sacred dimension of reality, while philosophy looks for explanations of the profane dimension of reality. The sacred dimension is felt in one's lived experience of the world, and thus it is qualitative in nature. The inner workings of the profane world, examined by philosophy, are accounted for through quantification. In the mythic worldview, it is the sacred dimension of reality which gives the profane dimension its importance. Right? So all of the all of the like the stuff that we consider to be the most important, it really in a mythic worldview, it only has importance so long as it's connected to the myth. It wouldn't make sense to go be productive for the sake of production. Right? You wouldn't be you'd be ignoring the gods in some way if that were the case. Right? And you would be ignoring the, the qualitative dimension of reality if that were the case. So it could be said that myth is concerned with revealing the value inherent in the world. When philosophical thought becomes the only paradigm that we think within, we lose the ability to see the inherent value, i.e. the meaning in things as they are. The byproduct of this is that we end up only valuing what we can measure. It's only the, the quantitative dimension of reality that gets measured. And further, we often end up striving for an ideal that is outside of reality, an ideal which exists in the conceptual realm only. We, we've all struggled with perfection, right? Well, what is that? We're living up to an ideal that, isn't, that doesn't have anything to do with our lived experience, right? And so we suffer because the ideal is over and above and when our ideal is always over and above our lived experience, a constant feeling of lack ensues. Now, for this reason, cultural commentators such as uh, John Verveke, for example, probably a lot of people have heard of him, have rightly attributed a meaning crisis to the modern age. Now, what Hattab brilliantly, I think, brings to consciousness is the fact that meaning, right, that is to say the sacred dimension of reality, which is the source of all meaning according to this mythic view, has not departed, it's not gone, but it's unconscious. The current way we see ourselves and the world around us emphasizes a notion of truth that excludes the revelation of mythic seeing. It just excludes it, it's not part of it. By deciding that our current view of truth is the only acceptable one, we forego the ability to see what actually matters. Right? Because we've decided there's only one way of seeing truth and it's fact, right? then everything else is somehow secondary to that. And you see things like this in the, uh, you know, in the 
the demythologizing. I don't know if you've heard of this. There's like a push in the 20th century to demythologize the Bible, to take out the metaphysical component of it and, and to see it only as what was fact, as what was history. And today our religious view is like, oh, that was a fact, that was a historical fact that happened, meaning it happened in this one way, and there's one way to think about it and one way to interpret it. And you see how this becomes a kind of literalism that starts excluding all of these other truths. And what I would say is all of our thoughts on religion, on spirituality, they're all bound up in this scientific worldview, and it's very hard to see outside of it because, again, we're, we're inside of it. So... This also highlights the importance of not viewing an ancient world through our current view of reality, right? But trying to see how the world was presented to ancient people. Else we fall into a sort of intellectual colonialism, which asserts the notion that people before us were somehow less than because they did not have access to the kinds of truth that we have access today. If we are to measure them by a standard of truth they didn't have access to, we must necessarily conclude that their thinking was false. Philosopher Martin Heidegger picks up on this issue in his examination of Anaximander's Left Behind Fragment, a really difficult to read but incredible essay that Heidegger writes on Anaximander. He says, even when philological and historical research treat philosophers before Plato and Aristotle in greater detail, Platonic and Aristotelian representations and concepts, modern transformations, still guide the interpretation. Basically, he's saying you take access, you take information you got from Aristotle, and you try to measure that against people that were speaking before Aristotle existed, and you necessarily conclude that it was false. But really, what you have to try to see is what the world looked like without access to that information before we decided that there was only one way of seeing. What Heidegger is pointing us to are the unconscious assumptions that guide the way we interpret ancient literature. Now, we must necessarily put down what we know and what we've convinced ourselves is true if we want any hope of understanding the mythical worldview and the fruit that it bears. When this difference in thought is not accounted for, the modern person suffers immensely for this act of hubris, which, ironically enough, was one of the greatest sins a Greek person could commit. It seems that they have much to show us about how to live in the world. This idea that where humans suffer the most is when they don't try to be what they are, when they try to live outside the limitations that were given to them. And this will start to come together as this essay goes on. The modern view of the world which has grown out of the advent of philosophy, is one of abstraction, right? This, that is to say, it comes at a distance from our lived experience of the world, which in turn allows us to attain a sense of predictability. This is why the scientific worldview is so seductive to us, because it starts to make us feel like the, whole, like the world's actually predictable, like it can be measured and repeated, right? But since the world itself is process, this is a point picked up by Anaximander's Aperion. It's all process. We only get a sense of predictability when our variables are removed from the world of lived experience and analyzed in isolation. So we have to abstract things in order to have the scientific worldview because lived experience isn't predictable and repeatable and measurable in that exact way. This in part accounts for the isolation often felt by the modern person who sees themselves as quite separate from the world around them. 
We pay for this predictability through a loss of connection with the essence of life, which in terms of lived experience is far more unpredictable than our models typically allow. Hattab points out that conceptual reason becomes selective in favor of a complete overarching stabilization of experience, allowing only those data of experience which can be controlled by thought, which satisfy the tests of repeatability of identification by comprehension and non-contradiction. So basically, because we have the scientific worldview that decides what a fact is, we then deselect like everything that doesn't fit into this. Here's an example. An hour can go by quickly, very quickly, right? Also, you could take psychedelics and you could live lifetimes in an hour. An hour is not a stable unit of measurement, except we would all say, if you said, wow, that went by and that went by like very quickly, we would say, yeah, but that's not actually how an hour is, right? Because what's the fact? The fact of an hour is an abstracted thing. It's an abstracted unit of measurement. That becomes the basis of reality. It's no longer your lived experience. It's not what you felt to be true. Something is true outside of what you felt to be true. That's the thing. So what you felt to be true is a lesser truth than the reality. Another way the modern person suffers psychologically is when they convince themselves that the world really is completely stable, comprehensible, and does not contradict itself. Right? This is logic, uh, one of the rules of logic. A thing can't be and not be. It's like, well, that's, that's just the rule of logic. That, that would select things based on the rule of logic, but life is very contradictory, very paradoxical. So the person whose sense of psychological coherence is wrapped up in the predictable nature of the world may find themselves on the brink of ontological shock when the world presents to them in a completely different way than they had configured it. And since I already spoke about psychedelics, this would actually be a good time to um, just talk about one, why they can be so jarring, and two, why they can be so healing. Because I think that if we can really come into an understanding of this mythical worldview, that the psychedelic experience can, can be interpreted in a way that that allows it to stay on its own terms. Because when people take psychedelics, they tend to get these experiences and this knowing of being in the sacred, that they are sort of always in the sacred. And one of the things that that can be, one of the reasons that can be so jarring is for the reasons we're talking about now, because our way of seeing the world is so unconsciously informed by this philosophical and scientific worldview, which is based on abstraction and distance from lived experience, that when we take a psychedelic and we have a direct experience of the sacred, it can create this ontological shock that I'm talking about, a shock in the very foundations of your reality and the way that you see yourself. And I mean, if we just look at the word psychedelic, it comes from the Greek psyche, meaning mind or soul, and delic comes from the Greek duos, meaning to show or to manifest. And so it is to show you what's in the soul, or it is to make the soul manifest. And when we are used to living in a way that doesn't recognize soul, which is the modern way of viewing, we have these experiences, again, they can be incredibly jarring, and that is simultaneously also why they can be so healing. Because our habitual way of being in the world is so patterned and informed by this philosophic and scientific way of, of seeing the world, 
it's so rational, it's so one-sided that the direct experience of the irrational is what can make us feel whole again. Yet, it is also, as I said, that which can shock us. And so I think that recovering an ancient way of seeing goes actually hand in hand with learning to integrate the psychedelic experience in a way for this very reason, because it gives you, in many cases, a direct experience of the sacred, which is what we're talking about trying to recover today. And that's what happens when we start to think that the abstraction is what it's really like. And what it's really like then doesn't have any sort of what it doesn't have any need to meet our expectations, we start to suffer because we convinced ourselves that it was all very stable, that it wasn't mysterious, maybe that it wasn't going to end, you know? And this is the idea with Aperion, right? It sets the limits to what it means to be a human. We come into being and we go out of being. And that's what sets the limits of what it means to be a human. And it's hubris to try to, to not recognize that as true in this archaic way of seeing. The mythic view, on the other hand, is defined in part by its ability to account for the mystery. A coherent mythic view in theory would not be surprised by a sudden change in reality because change is what defines reality in the first place. The mythic view is far more concerned with presenting what is and showing a person how they should orient themselves to what is rather than explain why or how something is. So this archaic way of seeing is about responding to reality as it presents itself, to fate. Hattab goes so far as to point out how the explanatory thinking associated with philosophy seeks to explain the world principally by eliminating the mystery. Now with this in mind, one can track the evolution of the self throughout time, showing how different ages accounted for and reacted to the mystery in life. So let's turn to the epic worldview of Homer and like the Iliad. There's no real localized or holistic concept of the self that exists within boundaries and is cut off from the rest of the world. In this world, different gods would lay claim to different parts of a person at different times. Right? There's no one soul which lives, thinks, and feels. Rather, the psyche lives, right? so the, in, the, the, yeah, the life force lives, the noose, which is like noose is like the spirit, thinks, or the intellect, and the thymos feels. That's the passion in the soul, the thymos. And it's not me, if I'm, if I'm looking at this mythic worldview, right, the gods, they come over us, and I'm in a fit of fury from Athena, and Athena grabs my spear and rams it through the enemy's heart, right? And, and so there's no, it's not like I'm necessarily the, this enclosed self that is making all of these decisions and acting. That's just not how they saw the world. And so also there's no shame, right? Shame only happens when there's an ideal that you have to live up to that's over and above reality, right? So you don't find shame in pagan cultures. It, doesn't, it wouldn't make any sense. So what you find is that the gods, the fates, they present us with a certain picture of reality and greatness in a human being is how they respond to what is. The human lot was to respond to life in the midst of the sacred, which was always laying claim to people through the sudden onset of emotions and twists of fate. What's more is that human beings and events find their place in relation to sacred powers. This is a world that is always held within the bounds of fate. 
Moira is the Greek word for this, derived from the verb myro, meaning to allot or to portion. So the, so the fates allot a certain experience of life and a certain life to us in our job, our greatness. The greatness in life is found in how we respond to what's been apportioned to us. The Iliad presents such a devotion to fate as the ultimate limiter of reality, that even Zeus, father of the gods, felt compelled to obey it when interceding in human affairs. So even the most powerful god could not overcome fate, an important concept. Here we see that the human predicament was not at all about how to control reality or overcome it, but how to live fully within it. To live fully meant to fully embrace one's fate. This is called, uh, there's a Stoic idea, amorphati, the love of one's fate. That that's really what's on offer to us as a human being, to love our fate and to work within the bounds of our fate, not to overcome it. Freud worked this out in terms of an omnipotence fantasy, that we have a fantasy that we're all powerful, that we're not going to die, that we can overcome all things. And I think when that's unconscious, that's hubris. Right, that's the greatest sin in the Greek world. The heroic ideal was about carrying out one's duty while acknowledging the fact that they were always up against the possibility of no longer having any more possibilities. Right, so it's the fact that we're in this situation that, that the heroic ideal is measured, not in overcoming it. In a certain sense, fate as the ultimate limiter not only attributed to humanity its importance, right? Being in the midst of non-being, right? If you come into being and you know you go out of being and you don't know where you come from and you don't know where you go, there's immense, if you really understood that, there's immense importance to being here, right? So it attributes to humanity its importance. Since the ideal of the time was to fulfill one's fate, which was doled out by the gods, the sacred dimension of reality, the burdens associated with self-conscious were virtually non-existent. So it's only in lyrical poetry that we begin to see the formation of an abstracted self that is separate from the world, like what we have today, like how we see ourselves. With the abstracted self comes the abstracted ideal that one must live up to. This, in turn, brings with it the advent of shame when that ideal is not met, an affliction that the modern person is quite familiar with. Now, one of the most important aspects of lyrical poetry is the expression of personal identity, like what does it mean to be me, which becomes a crucial ingredient in the historical development of rational thought. So this is something we start to see in the lyrical poets following Homer. There's an evolution in consciousness starting to happen. We start to become a self. But this is crucial, right, because it marks one of the very first distinctions that creates distance between an individual and the world around them. This is the distance that philosophical thought will later capitalize on as a notion of objective reality, right? The hour is an objective reality. And I actually write about that here. I say the modern world often conflates this notion of abstracted objectivity with the only acceptable truth according to rational standards. And because of this, the qualitative dimension of time and space and how they present to us in our lived experience are seen as less true than the linear time, which we as modern people take for granted as quote unquote how time really is. I was explaining that earlier because I had forgotten that I actually wrote it in there. But it's a very important concept because it helps us understand how we think the abstracted thing is, the, is reality. And then our actual reality 
gets downgraded in, in its value. Now you'll notice in this a subtle cue that the way one experiences their life is somehow less true than what actually is. For all that we gain from such a standard, this is another way our connection to life is severed in the pursuit of certainty promised by philosophical thought. And that's what it is. It's certainty. Because if we can abstract it, we can measure it, we can convince ourselves it's controllable, and now we have certainty, and now we don't have to bear the fact that the fates are actually mysterious to us and we have no idea what they're going to present us with. In the tragic poets, this distinction of self continues, but so too does the positive fatalism that characterized life in the age of epic poetry. This positive fatalism is this idea that, yes, we are bound. We are not going to overcome what bounds us. Um, but there's, that doesn't have to be a negative thing. Right? We can love our fate. We can, we can exist within it. And we can get a new idea, a new sense of what it means to be us within our fate. Culture, it seems, had not yet fully actualized the split between culture and nature and the tragic poets. Life was still to be embraced, not despite its limitations, but in light of them. Nietzsche, in his book, The Birth of Tragedy, seeks to reclaim this positive fatalism by looking at the world that gave birth to tragedy. It seems that Nietzsche picked up on this shift in worldviews and portrays the philosophical scientific view as a shrinking back from the uncomfortable aspects of reality, a view that is profoundly anti-life at its core. When I first read The Birth of Trage Tragedy by uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, it kind of blew my mind because he's always pitted against Christians and you know he's thought as this, he's the guy that pronounced God is dead. He's something that he noticed in culture. It's not necessarily something that he um, made up. But the point is, a lot of his issue with Christianity and with the world today is he viewed it as profoundly anti-life for this reason. Because it was trying to escape into an abstract view of things rather than accept the tragedy and, the, and all that goes with that in life as it actually is. He asked the question, is the scientific method perhaps no more than fear of and flight from pessimism, a subtle defense against truth? What an interesting thing, huh? Where we like to tend to view the scientific view as the only truth, the abstracted is the only truth. And Nietzsche says, no, no, that's a way we defend ourselves against the unpredictable nature of what truth actually is of our lived experience. Interesting point. Now, this brings us to the core of what motivated this shift in emphasis of, of importance from mythic to philosophical thought, which is the human proclivity for certainty. In order to feel certain, humans have shown that they can turn almost anything into an ism and disavow everything that doesn't coincide with our newfound certainty. But alas, regardless of view, the same Aperion claims us all in the end. Now, by the time we reach Plato... There's a fully abstracted ideal, as well as a way of bringing the separate self into accordance with that ideal, right? That's philosophical discourse and contemplation that you hear in Socrates, right? So Plato had an abstracted ideal, that's the Plato absolute, right? And so by, by this time, we're already working on ways of how can we get ourselves to cohere with the abstraction outside of our lived experience. 
It is when this shift fully takes, and this is what we see obviously like in Christianity today, right? It's, it's we're trying to cohere ourselves with a view that's over and above reality. And the good is something we escape to and get to. We don't have to say escape, but something we get to, but it's not something necessarily that we're in right now. It's when this shift fully takes place that myth is downgraded to a lesser form of truth rather than the disclosure of a different dimension altogether. Although the Greeks remained polytheistic, the shift toward an all-inclusive monotheism began to take shape. The ideal is now abstracted and otherworldly, and there grows a subtle implication that our job is to somehow escape our earthly life. This also brings with it the advent of an abstract morality, which prioritizes escape into the ideal over engagement with earthly life. This strain of thought becomes prevalent in many of the world's religions, particularly Christianity, which Nietzsche criticized for this very reason. Right? So now when the what's good, the good, is abstracted, what's true, what's fact is abstracted and away from our lived experience, we now measure ourselves against that. And now we have a morality that isn't based on us responding, let's say, to our instinctual urges and our biology. No, no. Now we measure ourselves against the truth that's over and above reality. And that's where we're at today. In Anaximander's fragment concerning Aperion, we see elements of both worldviews, which makes it especially good for the modern person looking to recover a sense of the world which was lost when mythical disclosure was downgraded in its importance. The Aperion is a word which describes the mystery, which being comes out of, is sustained by, and must necessarily go back to. Note that this does not refer to any individual being or thing, but being in its totality, a point Heidegger expresses explicitly. So what Heidegger does is he says this idea, he picks up on this idea of Aperion. He says we all come out of being or we come into being and then we go out of being. We don't know where we come from and we don't know where to go, but that's what the truth is, right? The truth is that we have these very limited parameters that are set on what it means to be a human being. And that is where we should start when we think about how we should live our lives. But instead of that, we get carried away by what he calls small beings, all of the, all of the minute and minuscule things that seem to you know, vie for our attention in, a day to, in the day-to-day. He says we can't focus on what's true because we get carried away by all, we get mistaken by all of these other things. It's an interesting idea, and the more you contemplate it, and this isn't on Heidegger, so I'm not going to keep going on that, but the more you contemplate it, the more it starts to open for you, and you can see there's a lot of wisdom in it. Now, in a mythic way, it affirms that things are and that those things are ultimately governed by temporality. That's what's true, that things are and that they are temporal, that they are governed by that temporality. In this way, it does not seek to bypass fate, but affirms its existence. And this is where we come up with ideas like Amor Fati, the love of one's fate, which was so important to Nietzsche. Once the limit is set, in this case, the limit is set by the finitude which characterizes the human experience, an individual is then presented with the question of how one should respond to the fact of how things are. The Aperion is sacred in that it affirms the mystery, which is the cause and final end of all things, but is ultimately incomprehensible. We don't understand it. 
We don't know when it's going to end. It, we, we can't comprehend. It's too complex for a finite individual. And that's what we're responding to. This worldview is a statement about reality, not a belief system. And thus, any religious view, be it polytheistic or monotheistic, is compatible with it. If we are to understand truth in this sense, it is synonymous with the revelation of being. Truth is what is. A notion that many hope to use the scientific method in order to overcome. In our attempts to overcome fate, however, one has to ask themselves if perhaps we have put our focus in the wrong place. Put simply, if we spend our time trying to manipulate reality, it is very difficult to appreciate the beauty in it. The recognition of soul is unknowingly sacrificed on the altar of certainty. What it means to be a soul in the world, to suffer our fate, to suffer in particular ways, that gets sacrificed as we are trying to escape to this view of certainty. Anaximander also posits the idea that when things come into being, that is, when they are individuated from the Aperion, they necessarily split into opposites. This helps us understand the ordering function of the, the world without projecting onto it any current notion of morality. Similar to the Chinese concept of the Tao, like universal harmony, must be achieved, and thus any attempt, uh, any time existence moves into one extreme, it will necessarily correct itself with its opposite. So justice in this view, even what might be considered divine justice if one takes the Aperion to be divine, is not a matter of correcting for moral failings or shortcomings of character in relation to an abstract ideal. Rather, it is the natural process of harmony. Justice would therefore represent a kind of harmonization, a balancing process through which nature repays transgression, i.e. the assertion of one opposite, by negating it in favor of another opposite. That's what it means. That's what justice is from this view. So notice what happens here when justice becomes about the balance of about the harmonization of the opposites and the balance of the opposites. What happens is that the idea of justice and the idea of morality no longer being connected to an abstract ideal, they start to take on a completely different flavor. A diff it, it, they require a different way of relating to yourself altogether. Because if our morality is based off an abstract ideal as it is in modern thinking, right, based off of the Judeo-Christian religious thinking, then what happens is actually, right, your morality perhaps might force you to go against the instincts, right? And that's what's considered moral. But notice from this archaic way of seeing, what you're doing is you're actually creating uh, more of an imbalance, more of a polarity. And because this is a way of looking at nature, not exactly human behavior, though the two are obviously hard to you know, pull apart at times. But because this is a view of nature, it says if you're, through an archaic way of seeing, it says if your morality is based off, an, off of an abstract way of seeing and it creates a one-sided way of being, then, you are, then that is going to be balanced out in the psyche with or without the conscious will of the ego. And in psychology, Jung picks up on a word by Heraclitus, who was also a pre-Socratic philosopher, he picks up on a word from Heraclitus 
called enantiodromia. And what enantiodromia is, is the balancing of the opposites. It's when the, what, when the psychic force builds up in the unconscious, so to speak, to such a degree that it overpowers the ego and the ego ends up living out its opposite. So something to notice, the, the difference in how seeing these two things really has a, a massive effect on how we see ourselves within our lives and what we see as moral and what we see as just. And I like that particularly because it's so easy for us to think that we're being moral or to have an idea of being moral that actually creates a really one-sided way of being where our biology and our instincts all get ignored. And we call that a virtue, uh, but nature does not. And that's something that the archaic people, I think, really understood that we struggle with. This, as a starting point for understanding the way life is, strikes me as helpful simply because it removes many of our projections about the way life ought to be. When the story we tell ourselves is different from reality, we suffer. We do this in small ways every time we favor an abstracted ideal over our own lived experience. In the modern age, where the philosophical worldview has eclipsed mythical disclosure, we find ourselves with all sorts of useful tools, but totally lost as to how we should use them to make our lives more meaningful. It is the dimension of life concerned with value, which teaches us where to apply the scientific method and where not to. When that dimension is removed, science oversteps its bounds and becomes a form of tyranny to the soul. If we are to find a way of living that both reclaims what we lost and also affirms what we have, then a dialectic notion of truth is necessary. Dialectic meaning both and. If there's only one form of truth, it's not only that the soul suffers, but also that we close ourselves off to this entire way of being, to the entire disclosure that comes from other kinds of truth. We must learn to exist within the existential tension of our own finitude without explaining it away or trying to inflate ourselves to the level of gods in order to overcome it. With our own mortality as our starting point, we can get on with the noble task of using our advancements to add to the beauty and meaning of the world rather than constantly waging war with it. Annihilation back into the mystery awaits all of us. It is reverence for this fact that teaches us how to be in this ancient way of seeing. It reminds us to celebrate and affirm what we have while we still have it. So that final line is how I ended the paper. And in that paper, as you can tell, I was kind of trying to summarize both what I think Lawrence Atab had said in that book and also what it would mean to try to see the world from an ancient perspective rather than measure them against ours. And you know what's really interesting? This is I had this was a class that I had called Myth and Philosophy. And I would I would easily rank it as the most influential class just because if as I really sink into these ideas, reading all of the other myths and philosophies, I can contextualize them a little better. So now when I study other cultures and other religions, I'm, I'm trying to see the world through their eyes. And it's a much more relational way of being. It's a, it's a way of relating to the other in a, in a way that honors them in some way. And it connects us, you know, it connects us to that culture in a way. So the story that I wanted to share, though, is after the final class, 
I had been contemplating these ideas for a few months, along with uh, the other people in my cohort, of course. And as class got out, there were a few of us that were, we were kind of starting to talk about it, and we were getting really, really jazzed up about it. And I was trying to understand it, and I was like, okay, so, you know, if I think about, and I was using a goddess, a Hindu goddess at the time as an example, this goddess Saraswati, who's like, she's the goddess of kind of the beauty that comes out of benevolent or wise speech or, or wise conversation. That, that's like one of her realms of being. And so I was saying, oh, she's not the goddess of speech, right? She's not the goddess of, of the written or spoken word. She's the beauty that is present when those things are done wisely. And then suddenly I felt, oh, she's the goddess that's here now. And then we were thinking about it. And then, you know, what was so interesting is as we started to see the world this way, and we kind of started to glimpse it in our contemplations, there was something really exciting about it. For me, there was something, a feeling of coming home, arriving home. And then at the end of the conversation, we had all realized that we had actually, we were remembering this way of seeing. As we were starting to, to think about it, we realized, oh, as, as children, we actually saw the world this way. You know, there was no subject-object split. There was no distance between us and our lived reality. And one of the reasons that I think that was such a cool realization for me and such an interesting thing to contemplate is because what it asserts is that this mythic way of seeing, this way of being immersed in the world so that you are uniquely aware of the divine is somehow innate to us. Right? We didn't have words for it um, when we were children. And in fact, when we started to learn words for it, I think that's ironically when we started to lose it. But to think that this archaic and sacred way of seeing the world is uh, somehow a birthright to us because there's a lot of emphasis in our religions today on the transcendent aspect of divinity the the aspect that's beyond our beyond humanity beyond this physical realm and this physical world and what i think is really cool about recovering this ancient way of seeing is that it's a way of in of engaging with the imminent aspects of divinity the the aspects of divinity that are both present and perceivable in the world that we are actually in